0: Thank you, Andrew. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Welcome. It's good to see you all this morning. As Andrew said, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Justin. I serve on our ministry team here at Mount Hope. It's great to be with you in worship this morning, especially if you're visiting with us today. A very special, warm welcome to you. We're so glad that you're here in worship this morning. In just a minute, we will be in the book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 14. So if you want to open up your Bibles or grab a Bible from in front of you, if you need help finding it, no problem at all. Those verses will be available on the screen right behind me in just a moment as well. It's page 10 in the Bible bibles that are right in front of you. But let me start with this question this morning about how you like to do work. Now whether that's work that's in a school or in a classroom or work that you do at your job or work that's in your home, how many of you like to do work in a group versus in as an individual? So let me ask it this way, how many of you are individual workers? I just like to do things on my own, get it done on my own. Okay, How many of you are group people? I like to work on a team, work with a group. There's a couple of you that are both on different sides, right? The group people are saying, yeah, I kind of like working with other people. Those individual workers are like, I don't trust anyone else. This is the way that I like to do work. I wanna unveil a little secret to you this morning, a little teacher secret. Um, In addition to my role here at the church, I also serve as a teacher at Boston University. And there's this secret that I've learned over time about giving projects and assignments to students. The secret that I'm gonna reveal to you is actually a secret that benefits me. So let's just keep this a little quiet just between us. Over the first couple of years that I used to teach, I used to assign individual projects to the students. So if I have 50 students in a class, 50 papers would be submitted, and for the next three weeks, I'd be grading 50 papers. I figured out a way around that. Instead of assigning 50 individual papers, break them up into groups, and then you only have to grade 10 papers instead of 50. And so this has become my little system that I've used over the last couple of years to make life better for myself, which, of course, is all our biggest priority, right? So I assign these group projects. And the truth is, they do amazing work. My students will come up on presentation day. They'll deliver this fantastic, polished final project. They'll get up in front of the class, and as a unified team of five individuals, they'll deliver this spectacular presentation. But over time, I've also realized something else, that there's sometimes things that go on behind the scenes that a teacher never has access to. So one of the things I've added to these projects is a self and peer evaluation portion where you have to evaluate your own role on the team and your teammates' roles on the team. And, find, and that way I get a good idea of who did the work, how much work you did, that type of a thing. And so this morning, if you're ready for it, I'm going to read to you some actual contributions that have been sent to me from one team member about their other team members. So I hope you're ready for this. This is some actual comments that I've received from my students about their group members. Quote, My cat did just as much work on this project as Emily did. <laughs> Here's another one. He's a classic over-promiser, under-deliverer. During our first meeting eight weeks ago, he said he'd do the research and write the first section of the paper. I'm still waiting. Here's another one. I've never met someone who could sprout a different illness to coincide with each of our team meetings. Here's another one. I'm not sure if he's a real person or a ghost. Either way, he did no work on this project. Now, I get a lot of these, and then I get a little behind-the-scenes look at what's happening in these group projects. I get to realize that that perfectly polished presentation came together somehow, but it wasn't because there was a lot of unity behind the scenes. But the truth is, my favorite comments that I get back from students are these. It's the most common remark I get. Quote, I did 99% of the work. Now, my favorite is when three people on the same team say that exact same comment that I did 99% of the work. My students are not known for their math skills, but that's what they believe. Why is that? Because all of us believe that credit is important. Who gets the credit? How do they get the credit? Did I get the credit that I deserve? We all believe that credit is important, and that's why we respond the way we do in these types of quotes. We care About who gets the credit. If you've been with us these last couple of weeks, we've been walking through the life of Abraham. Now, if you're not familiar with Abraham, Abraham is really the story, the origin of our faith in God often comes from this life of this man who was called out from among his family and his people, and God sent him. And if you remember, in week one, we learned like this, that so Abraham went. Abraham listened to God. Abraham trusted God, and Abraham followed God. We learned about that in week one. In our second week together, we learned that there will sometimes be obstacles that come up against our faith, things that we have to overcome, and we learned that obstacles are opportunities to exercise our faith. This morning, as we turn to Genesis chapter 14, before we read the passage, let me give you some context on what's happening when we get to Genesis chapter 14. You might remember Abraham and his nephew Lot had just parted ways. Lot had chosen one part of the land, and Abraham and his people went to another part of the land to settle it. In Genesis 14, we come upon the first major battle in Scripture, the biggest war that takes place in Scripture up to this point. The Bible tells us that there are these five kings that are ruling in different kingdoms in that area, and they go to battle against four other kings and kingdoms in that area as well. It would be like a mini world war taking place at that time, five kingdoms against four kingdoms. And during this time, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is living in a a city called Sodom. And Lot's kingdom or Lot's area, Lot's city is taken over by one of these kings and they are all captured and taken away. So now Abraham has to get involved. He wasn't involved in this battle, in this war until this moment when his nephew and his nephew's family is kidnapped and taken away. So as we read this morning, I hope that we can see the context of what's happening. Massive war taking place, a giant battle. And in that battle, Abraham's nephew is kidnapped and taken away. And so Abraham, he brings together 318 of his fighting men. And they go chase after these kings that have taken his nephew hostage. And they go after them and absolutely rout them, destroy them with just 318 men. And he brings back Lot and his family and he rescues them. And there's this great, great victory that takes place in Genesis chapter 14. And right after that victory happens, there's this summit, this meeting between the king of Sodom and Abraham and a third person who comes and joins this meeting. And that's what we'll be reading about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 and following. We read there like this. After Abram returned from defeating Keterlaumer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. That I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. So that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. So I hope we can picture what's just taken place here. Massive battle has just ended. And there's Abram meeting with the king of Sodom in this valley after the battle is done. Abram's the one that's won this victory. And the king of Sodom is ready to benefit from that victory because his kingdom has now been returned thanks to Abram and the victory that Abram won. And so they come to this valley to meet and have this summit in the valley, this meeting that they're going to have with each other. And in the meeting, the king of Sodom tells Abram that, after this battle is done, you give me all the people that we rescued, but you get to keep all the goods that, you have, that we received in the plunder of this war. It's during this time that a third individual walks into the middle of this meeting, a man named Melchizedek, who in all of Scripture is one of the most mysterious characters that have spent many, many years of research that scholars have done on who this person is. Now, I don't want to spend too much time this morning focusing on who Melchizedek is, but we see here that he's the king of Salem, which is likely the city of Jerusalem that we know today, that he is a priest unto God most high. The New Testament talks about Melchizedek a lot. In fact, the book of Hebrews mentions his name repeatedly, that he was actually a forerunner, a shadow, a type of Jesus who is to come. And so rather than going into all of that, here's what we know. In Genesis 14, we know that Melchizedek was a priest and a king, a priest unto God most high. And in the middle of this summit in the valley, in the meeting that's going on, Melchizedek comes into the middle of that meeting and he comes to Abram while Abram is about to possibly make a deal with the king of Sodom. And he says like this to him, blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, if we want to step back even further and remember what we learned last week, there was a moment when Abram stood looking out at the land that was in front of him. And God says to Abram like this, he says, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. God makes this incredible promise to Abram that I will give you land and I will give you generations. I'll give you offspring. Two big promises. But never once in that verse or in that promise do you hear, I will also defeat your enemies. It's not really written there. It might be assumed, but it's not actually there. It's, I will give you the land, and I will give you generations. And this morning, in the passage of Scripture we read, we get to see something about God, and we get to see something about our response to God. So let's start right from the beginning with our, something that we learn about God. It's about something about his nature, about God's nature in how he does things. He says like this, I will give you land and I'll give you offspring. I'll give you generations. I'll give you these things. But when Abram and his 318 men defeat these kings that are arrayed against him, Abram learns something else that Melchizedek says nice and clearly. He says, praise be to the God who gives your enemies into your hand. Abram learned something about God that day. That this God that he serves is different from every other God of that region. Because this God is not just a God who promises something and walks away. He is a God who promises and makes a way. Do you follow me on this for a second? That God who said, I will give you land and I'll give you generations also is clearing the way for Abram to have those things. That he's not just a God who promises and walks away. Because in this time, during this first big battle in scripture, here's what would likely have happened. Nine kingdoms battling each other. But it's also likely nine gods battling each other. Which God is the most powerful? Which God that we worship is the one that's actually worth following? Melchizedek comes to Abram and he says like this, blessed are you Abram because your God delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, he's not like one of these other gods who promises and then just disappears. He's a God who promises and then makes a way for that promise to come to fulfillment. This morning, I think some of us need to hear this because you and I are probably in a journey of faith right now where we're trusting God and saying, God, I don't know how to solve this problem or figure out this situation in my life. I don't know how to take that next step. But God, I believe that you who are a promise-making God are a promise-keeping God, and you're a God who makes a way in the wilderness. You are God who will create the path for me to go down. You are the God who will clear the obstacles that stand in the way, even if it's four kings or five kings or all of the armies of the world arrayed against me. God, you will find a way for me to accomplish what you have promised. If you look throughout scripture, this is the way we see God, where the people of Israel are gathered up against the Red Sea, and you've got the armies of Egypt on one side and a giant sea in front of them, and there's God in the middle saying that it may look like you're stuck, but I'll open up a way in the middle of the sea for you to walk through. This morning, some of us need to be reminded of this. You're wondering, God, God, did I hear your promise correctly? God, should I have followed you from the beginning? And this morning, there's a reminder to each of us that he's not just God who promised promises and walks away. He is God who promises and makes a way. All throughout scripture, we see this. We see this in Isaiah where it's written like this, I will make a way in the wilderness. I will create rivers in the desert for you. This is God telling Abram right from the beginning that if I told you that this land and these generations will be yours, then I will make a way for that to happen. Maybe you walk in this morning and all of this is new to you. The Bible is new to you. Christianity is new to you. Everything seems foreign and different. But if you want to understand why we sing what we sing here on a Sunday morning, this is why. Because from the beginning of time, we sinned and we separated ourselves from God. And God came into that moment and said, I will promise a savior. I will promise a way out of this mess that you've created. But he didn't just promise and walk away. He enters our story and Jesus Christ comes and he dies for our sins because God doesn't just promise and walk away, he promises and makes away. And this morning, I think some of us need to be reminded of this because it's been a while since you've known this, since you've felt this, since you've experienced this because you feel like God made a promise so long ago and you think he's abandoned you in the middle of that promise. But remind yourselves this morning, just as Abram learned that when God promises land and generations, he will clear every obstacle to make that promise come true. So we learn something about God in this passage. We learn that he is not just a God of the plan. He's also a God of the details, that he will make a way where there seems to be no way. And this morning, some of us need to be reminded that he is not just the God of the plan. He is the God of the details, the small, seemingly tiny details of our lives. This past Wednesday, my wife Alin was going to work. She had a very busy day ahead of her, dozens of patients waiting to see her that morning. It was a stressful day that was coming up, and as she drives about a mile or two miles away from home, she hits a pothole and the tire just bursts. And so she's got this flat tire and she's trying to figure out how to get to work and take care of her patients. She pulls the car up to the one house that she could pull the car up to, slowly crawling up to it as the tire just keeps getting worse and worse. And she pulls up to this house and then starts to think, what do I do now? She's going to be so late to work that day. There's all the stress and the worries of the day. There's the, the, I was already at work at that point, so it was impossible for me to get back there. Plus, she knows she's married to me, so that adds even more stress to her life every day. And so she's got all of this. She pulls up. And she doesn't know what to do at that moment. In that moment, a gentleman from the house that she's parked in front of steps out and comes to her and says, What's wrong? Sees the tire. He takes the keys, pulls the car into his driveway, changes the tire for her, does everything. And it's in that moment, and in fact, it's kind of funny too, because as he was putting that tire, the old tire, into the trunk there was a little piece of paper that our our sons had created while they were in Kids Adventure the week before. And that paper says about God's love on that piece of paper. And this gentleman sees it, Alin sees it, and it's just this reminder... That in the middle of everything else going on, God is still making a way. He's still in charge of the details of your life. Now, it doesn't always work out perfectly, but at the end, if he promises, he makes a way to fulfill that promise. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. That God who makes a way, this God who promises and keeps his promise is in our lives daily. Not just in the big milestone moments, but every day in the details, he's always available. So Abram and Melchizedek teach us a lesson about God. That he's not just a promise-making God, he's a promise-keeping God. But this passage also teaches us something about our response to this God. If you look in the passage we read this morning, the king of Sodom says something uniquely different from what the king Melchizedek says to Abram. The king of Sodom comes to Abram and says, Abram, let's make a deal here. Let's circumvent. Let's go around this God of yours and let's make a deal between you and me. Let's make a treaty right now. Your God may have just delivered all of these enemies into your hands. Let's make this deal. You give me all the people that you rescued from that hostage situation, and I will give you all the spoils of war. Let's make a deal, Abraham. It's such a different interaction between the king Melchizedek than the king of Sodom. They're very different interactions with Abram in the valley that day. Now, I want you to put yourself in Abram's shoes. Abram just won this massive victory, the first big battle victory that we see in Scripture. And when you and I, we feel victory in our hands, what happens? We tend to trust our hands. We tend to believe that we did this. And then when there's an offer of a side deal that comes up, we'll take the side deal because I am in control. I'm the one that did this. But Abram teaches us something about our response to God. Abram's faith was built in such a way in this passage that he refused to make a side deal with the king of Sodom. He says, I will not take anything from you because I trust God and his hand so much that I will never let God's glory be given to someone else. And his faith is built around giving credit to where credit is due. Here's why. Abram's faith was not built on the outcome that he had just experienced. His faith was built on the who, not the what, the who of this situation. That I will trust God regardless of what happens. I will put my trust and my faith in him because the who matters more than the what. So I will give him the credit that he is due. So much of faith and our response to God is giving credit to where credit is due. Abram refuses to give credit to the king of Sodom. You know, it would have been so easy in that time. It was this system of quid pro quo. You give me something, I'll give you something. That's how treaties were made in that time. And yet Abram refuses to follow that system of the world. Why? Because if I follow that system of the world, it means I have to give credit To where credit is not due. So I will only give credit to where it's due, even if it means, King of Sodom, you keep everything. I will not let you ever proclaim that you made me rich or that you gave me something. Because it steals the credit away from God. This morning I want to ask you this question: in your day-to-day life, in your journey of faith, who gets the credit? If I'm honest with myself, this is a question that I struggle with because when I assume that I have faith, it's often built like this. I'll go to work, I'll go to school, I'll raise my family, I'll do things and I'll build my kingdom and I'll sprinkle a little God in the middle of it for good luck. Abram does not operate that way in this passage. You'll see there are other passages where he absolutely does. But here in this passage, he says, God is not my good luck charm in all of this. He gets all the credit for this, and I will live and operate in such a way where he gets the credit. I will not make a side deal where the glory of God is stolen, where he does not get the credit that he deserves. He's saying, I will not make a deal that minimizes God's role in my life. The more and more I think about it, I think of our business dealings, the way we deal in our families, the way we spend our private moments. How often do we make side deals that minimize the role of God in our lives? Where he doesn't get the credit because I'm ultimately in control. And Abram says like this, that king of Sodom, I will not let you steal the credit that belongs to God. I will not let you take what belongs to God. I think in all of our lives, it's, it it comes down to this in so many ways that we build our lives around what works. So it can be whatever works, my hard work, my effort, my smarts, my bank account, my abilities, my network, that's what works. So I'll put my trust into that and then I'll sprinkle a little God on the side of it. Lynn and I have two children, and for anyone who has small children, you know that children will wake you up all the time in the middle of the night. But in our family, nothing has woken us up more in the middle of the night than this little thing. I don't know if you guys can see what this is. If you're under the age of 30, this is a pager. (laughs) This thing, which belongs to my wife, and I stole it from her this morning, hope no one pages right now. Is something that is still used not by children or not by college students or not by professionals in the business world but by people who make life-and-death decisions still use these things in fact when I think about it, I think about it like this if two eight-year-olds wanted to get in touch with each other they can probably get into each other touch with each other faster than two people who are making life and death decisions right now because of this little system that we use, that we've always used of pagers. In fact, I found out recently when my wife was on the phone, when she said, hold on, I'll be home soon. I just have to send a fax before I go. And I just thought to myself, we still send faxes? Because here's what happens in this system, in this world that she's in. These, these systems have been used for generations and they're going to continue to be used because they worked. This is what we've always done. This is what works. This is what we're going to use. And the more I think about this, the more I recognize this is what we do when it comes to faith. This is what's worked. I studied really hard. I worked really hard. I did this on my own. And I'm going to continue using this system. And God will be this side deal that I make every once in a while to sprinkle a little good luck on my decisions and my effort and my work. But every time I do that, here's what I'm also doing. I'm stealing the credit away from God and bringing it back to myself. I'm taking the credit that belongs to God. Abram refused to allow that to happen. He says to the king of Sodom, you will never be allowed to tell anyone that you made Abram rich because God is the one that did that. You'll never be able to tell anyone that you gave Abram victory because God's the one that gave me that. There is something about trust and credit that go hand in hand. When I trust God, I will give him credit. When I give God credit, I am showing my trust in him. I think for all of us who are going through a faith journey right now and are trying to figure it all out, I want to ask you in your life, who gets the credit? When you are sharing with someone at work or someone at school about something great that happens in your life, who gets the credit for it? Because Abram demonstrates to us that faith and credit go hand in hand. When I give God credit, I'm expressing trust in him. When I trust God, I give him credit. They go hand in hand with each other. So if God has just answered a big prayer in your life or he's provided in some miraculous way in your life and you get to the office tomorrow or you get to the workplace or the school tomorrow, what do you tell others? Abram was adamant that God was going to get the credit that he deserves. So I ask you this morning, When God blesses you, when he provides you victory, when he makes a way where there was no way, do you point back to him? I'm embarrassed when I think about how rare I do that, how rarely that happens. That when God provides for me, here's what I do. I'll go and just enjoy the blessing. And then every once in a while, I'll bring up the fact that the blessing happened but I don't give credit where credit is due. In this week that's in front of you, is there even one opportunity for you to share with someone else about who gets the credit in your life? About one answered prayer, one moment, one deliverance, one victory, one way that was made for you. Can you share that with someone else this week and tell them that this was God's hand in my life? Can I tell you about something that God did for me this past week? Because trust and credit go hand in hand. My faith grows when I give credit to where credit is due. My credit, when it goes to the right place, my faith grows. They work hand in hand. In fact, Abram demonstrates it in this passage. He interacts with the king of Sodom. He interacts with Melchizedek. And the Bible tells us that Abram just takes a tenth of everything that he just won. And he gives it to the one who represents God. He says, no one will take away God's credit. When God blesses me, I'll bless God. They will not take away his credit in my life. You know, when those groups hand in those projects at the end of the semester, every project, the final page of that paper that they submit, is something called a bibliography. And you might remember that. Some of you might have a little stress in your heart when you hear that word right now. A bibliography It's where you cite, where you give credit to every source that you read for this paper or for this project. You're giving credit to the source. And our lives need to be a living bibliography, constantly giving credit to the source. God, there's something about you I learned in this passage that you promise and you make a way. Now, here's my response to that. I will be a walking, breathing bibliography, constantly giving credit to the source of all things. I will give you the credit that you deserve. As our worship team comes back up this morning and prepares us to close, I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads this morning. When I give God credit... I experienced faith as it was meant to be experienced. Not trusting what happens, but trusting the who that's behind all of it. This morning, some of you may be sitting in a situation right now where you could use a way being made, where you need God to open up a door in your life right now. Maybe you're saying to yourself right now, God, there is so much uncertainty and doubt in my life right now. And God, I just need you to open up a way. God who promised, God make a way. And some of us this morning are here and we recognize that there is just been this terrible lack of credit given to where credit is due. This morning, you have an opportunity to remind yourself who the source is to give credit to where credit is actually due. As we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, as our worship team leads us in song in just a minute, I ask you this morning, is credit going to where it belongs? Lord, we come before you this morning, we recognize something about you. That when you make a promise, you don't just promise and walk away. You promise and you make a way just as you promised land and generations to Abram, you also made a way to clear the obstacles in his path to get to your promised destination. And this morning, God, some of us need a clearing of the path. We need something removed from our way. We need a door to open for us. And this morning, God, we come to you, the source, and we put our trust and our faith in you. Even in moments where we can't see the outcome, we trust you. Even when we don't know the future, we trust you. Even when we don't know how it'll all turn out, we put our trust and our faith in you this morning. God, forgive us for the ways that we steal the glory from you. We take the credit away from you. God, I pray this week would be a week where we're able to point people to you where we remind ourselves of the victories of yesterday and we carry them into today and we share them with others. We point them to you. Thank you for your goodness again this morning. God, I pray for every one of my friends right now who don't have a relationship with you, who don't know you personally. Holy Spirit, I pray that even right now you would open their hearts to know you and to understand you even when the future looks uncertain, God, that you are in control. Help us to hear that this morning. God, we give you all the glory and the honor. God, we give you the credit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.